Hi, and welcome to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. We're a little early this week, and that's because we wanted to do some sort of playoff preview. We settled on talking to the number one seeds, the Rays in the AL and the Dodgers in the NL. We go into the broadcast booth to talk pitching with Rays analyst Brian Anderson and everything Dodgers with their play-by-play voice, Joe Davis. Brian Anderson pitched 13 years in the majors for four teams. He pitched big when the games were big, posting a 2.43 career ERA in 29 and two-third postseason innings and won a ring with the 2001 champion Diamondbacks. He's been the Rays' full-time TV analyst since 2011, which was a pretty good year to start. Brian, I made the comparison the other day that the Rays are like the county cross-country championship team those kids place 9th, 12th, 14th, 16th, and 17th. They have no stars, but a great pack. I found you, found you to be thoughtful in your analysis of this team. So how would you characterize them? I don't know if I would go county cross-country team, but I absolutely get what you're saying. I, I think if you look at this team um, around the country, you, know, you get outside of the uh, Tampa Bay, St. Petersburg, uh, Florida bubble, and say, hey, by the way, this is the number one seed in the American League. They went 40-20. and 20. Can you name four or five players? And most people, I don't think they probably could. And so you're absolutely right about that. Not a lot of household names, but the sum of the parts, I'll tell you, that they, they make it work. You know, a lot of really good ballplayers that are, you know, just really not known nationally. They have a ton of depth um, that they're able to plug and play. So... If they have to deal, you know, with the injury bug, which they certainly had to do that this year, especially with the pitching staff, they've got replacements that can come in, fill in, and you really don't miss a beat. It, it's, it's a pretty remarkable culture that they've been able to establish here, and guys buy into the system. And, and now that it's fully entrenched, uh, these guys believe in themselves. They know that they're going to be put in position to succeed, and they just play with a lot of confidence, and they play together. It's a close-knit group. So you're right. Some of the parts are greater than, you know, all the parts by themselves. There's no question about it. And they are a blast to follow and a blast to watch. How would you describe the pitching staff since that's your expertise? Well, you know, the the pitching staff, extremely deep. And that was shown this year. There were 24 different pitchers used in the 60-game schedule. And I I guess in speaking of how there's a lot of buy-in and how a lot of different guys had to step up in some tough spots, half, 12 different pitchers on the Ray staff earned at least one save, if you can believe that. That tied a record set by the 1973 Texas Rangers. And of course, that was over a real full season. And, And the Rays were able to do that in 60 games. So they had a lot of different guys step up. Um, you know, when the season started, Tyler Glasnow, Blake Snell, they were not yet stretched all the way out. So the bullpen had to eat a lot of innings early to get them, you know, stretched out. And then all of a sudden, Yanni Trinos gets hurt and goes on the IL. Charlie Morton missed a little bit of time on the IL. So other guys had to step up. And there was just a, boy, a lot of innings that the that the bullpen had to absorb. And they did extremely well. You know, they ended up with, you look at the, what the bullpen did over the course of the season. 25 wins came out of that bullpen. They had the second most innings thrown in the American League, a lot of that by design. But you just have a lot of guys, you know, just step up and, and, and do a job, and they kind of come from everywhere. So it's a pitching staff that's very deep, but at the same time, going into the playoffs here, it's very good at the front end of that starting rotation. You're going to go into the first series, 
You're going to throw out Blake Snell in game one, Tyler Glass now in game two, and Charlie Morton in game three. And the thing that you love about it, if you're a Rays fan, those guys are all at full strength now. So they will pitch as long and as deep into a game as they are effective. So you throw out those kind of starting pitchers with the bullpen that the Rays have, a lot of different styles, a lot of depth, a lot of different looks for the opposition. That can carry them a long way. In fact, it could carry them all the way. All right, so with each of those three starters, is there a number, something beyond the basic numbers with each of those guys that we should be watching as the postseason moves forward? I think with Blake Snell, it's his mix of pitches. Um, I think where Blake sometimes maybe gets into a little trouble is he's really he really has four-plus pitches, you know, a good four-seam riding fastball, slider, curveball, changeup, and they're all very good. And I think that when he goes out there with a very aggressive mindset, and he's able to establish that fastball early. And that doesn't mean that he has to lean on it like, you know, just, just pounding away at that fastball early as far as number of pitches, but establish it. Show these guys that you're going to attack with that fastball. And all of a sudden, when he makes them aware of that, here come the slider, the curveball, the changeup, and he can intermix those pitches so well that it's very difficult for a hitter to be confident. You know, hitters like to be able to get into counts where they can eliminate pitches. And when Blake Snell establishes the fastball early, you can't do that. You don't know what he's going to come with in any given count. And that makes him very, very dangerous, obviously, because all four of those pitches are plus pitches. Tyler Glass now, on the other hand, for him, it's just about being smooth to home plate. There's not really a number with him because he basically is a two-pitch guy. You know, he's going to run that fastball. It'll get a little bit of cutting action to it from time to time, and but that's going to you know be a 97 to 100-mile-an-hour pitch with an absolute 12-6 curveball off of that. So he likes to elevate the heater, come with the curveball down below the zone. I will tell you this, the last couple starts that he made here this season, he started to mix in his changeup just a little bit more to the left-handed hitters. And so that pitch being kind of a throwaway pitch, he actually got some key outs with that against lefties his last couple of starts. So that may be a pitch that you, uh, that you look for. And Charlie Morton, it was just a matter of getting him stretched back out. You know, he came off the IL, had a little shoulder discomfort. Um, his last two starts, he got into the mid-90s in pitches. And what you're going to see from him is that good fastball with, with life on it, sitting, you know, in the 93 to 95 range. And then that curveball that he's able to get, you know, it's a two-plane pitch, I like to call it, because he gets a lot of sweeping action to it a lot of horizontal action but a lot of vertical too so he gets a lot of depth and at the same time he can sweep it that pitch is uh obviously one of the best curveballs you're going to find in the game and with between that the fastball occasional change up occasional cutter um you know charlie's the most battle tested of the starting pitchers going into this postseason and yet he's third on the depth chart so that tells you how how strong the rays are and Really, that's, that's what you want to look for from, from those three. They, they keep it pretty simple. And certainly, uh, Morton, with a good postseason history, uh, much like yourself, uh, who's the smartest pitcher on the race? Ooh, boy. I, you know what? I, hmm, that's interesting. I, I, if you're talking about those three guys, it's funny because Charlie Morton is, is very uh, cerebral, but so is Tyler Glass now. You know, they're, they're very well-spoken. You can, when you ask them a question about pitching, you can see 
they think before they speak, which is always a, probably a smart thing to do. <laughs> but he, uh, you know, they, they are very cerebral in what they do. But I don't know if you could go to any one guy. There's a lot of different guys on this staff that have come over from different organizations. Maybe they were signed as a minor league, you know, free agent, or they were picked up off the waiver wire. And the Rays were able to isolate something that they do very well. And they bring them over and they teach them a little bit more about that. Tell them why the Rays think they have a program that will make them even more successful. And these guys buy into it. But I would think that that the, 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 two, the two smartest guys as far as their approach to pitching, wow. It, it would, I would probably have to go, you know, Charlie and, and Tyler uh, for sure. You know what? You could even throw in maybe a Josh Fleming because here's a guy that really – because of the injuries to the rotation, he got thrust into that. No one knew really what to expect from him, but he came in. He's got a very high pitching IQ. Good fastball to both sides of the plate. Pitchability doesn't overpower you with stuff, but he certainly knows what he's doing out there. It does a nice job of reading a hitter's approach and knowing when to adjust his you know, sequence of pitches to adapt to that approach. He's fun to watch, and you, you can tell that, that he's pretty sharp upstairs. So... It'd be hard to nail down just one guy, but let's just say this. The Rays have a lot of really smart pitchers. So he's one of those guys that you talked about, like the undrafted-ish kind of guys. He was drafted, but he was a Division three pitcher. Nick Anderson, another 32nd round pick in 2012, and now the closer. What makes him so good? I'm going to tell you, Nick Anderson, pretty amazing what he's been able to do. You know, the Rays picked him up last season at the trade deadline. It was kind of an under-the-radar type acquisition or trade made for, with the Marlins. And he came over and was unhittable. It, just absolutely unhittable. And he's picked up right where he has left off. I, I think he had one rough outing this season, and he may, maybe gave up a run or two. I, I mean, it was a joke how good he's been, and he keeps it as simple as I've ever seen. You talk about diving into the analytics. He must have not only tremendous spin rate on his four-seam fastball, but the efficient spin. You know, not just the overall spin, but that efficient spin that keeps it right at the top of the strike zone. It doesn't have as much drop as other guys' fastballs, and he's absolutely able to come right out over the heart of the plate with that pitch and guys just don't have a, a handle on it. And then he combines that with the curveball. And the curveball, as his outings have gotten closer and closer to where we are now, to the you know, postseason getting ready to start, his curveball has as much depth on it as it has had since he's come over to the race. So that's Nick Anderson. It, he's simple. I mean, he's as simple as it gets. I'm going to throw fastballs up. I'm going to come with curveballs down. And so far in his time with the Rays, nobody, and I mean nobody, has been able to, uh, to figure him out. All right, so you know, from great pitching to great arms, uh, could Kevin Kiermaier pitch? Every time I watch him you now, it seems like he's throwing out a guy at the plate. You know what? I, I, listen, I, I wouldn't put it past him. He, he's got an <laughs> absolute cannon. We were talking on our broadcast yesterday. Kevin Kiermaier is one of those guys that you start to think about the jump that he gets on balls off the bat. He's a very good read of the ball off the bat, obviously, and he combines that good jump with a great first step. Um, he can absolutely fly. He gets to top speed as quick as anybody in the game. Only takes him a couple of steps, and he's already at full motor. And then on top of that, he's a great glove guy. He's a tremendous athlete does well off of his feet so he can leave his feet, whether it's jumping, diving, sliding, very adept at, at all of those moves. 
And then he's got an absolute rocket arm with accuracy. I, I mean, he really has the whole package, which is, I guess, why you walk away with the platinum glove and you're always in the running for the gold glove. You know, he just is a, an elite defender, but he uncorked a pitch the other day. And now, granted, he had a, a full uh, head of momentum with the pro hop in there, but he uncorked the throw a couple nights ago to nail a runner at the plate, you know, in that uh, season, uh, you know, ending series against the Phillies. I think it was Andrew McCutcheon. And uh, the ball out of the hand was 96.9 miles an hour. So I think if you gave him uh, an opportunity to get on the mound throwing downhill, <laughs> not only would he love to do it, but he would, uh, he'd probably surprise you with some un- outstanding velo. How do the, the Rays catchers uh, impact how the pitchers perform? You know what? I, I think that they help uh, build the confidence of the pitching staff because of a couple things. Number one, they're fully invested in taking the time to learn the pitching staff and learn each individual pitcher, what he likes to do, what he doesn't like to do, what he's good at, what may be working for him on that certain day. And so they're, they're very tuned into the pitcher and they let you know by the way that they work behind the plate, by the way that they call pitches and not only call pitches, but call for locations, just the, the gyrations and animations behind the plate. They let the pitcher know they want that outing for the pitcher to be as good for them as it is. You know, they're invested, I guess. I guess invest would be the right word. They are as invested in that outing as the pitcher is. And they let that pitcher know that. So that pitcher knows, hey, this isn't just a guy back there calling pitches, putting fingers down. This is a guy back there that wants this as bad as I do. And we really are working like a team. And that instills a ton of confidence in the staff. To follow up on that, the coaches as well. Last year, I went and talked to the infield coach and the outfield coach regarding the positioning uh, of everyone. I didn't get a chance to talk to Kyle Snyder, but I'm sure that he's uh, heavily involved in that. And in addition to uh, how pitchers pitch, give me an account of this coaching staff as it preps the team for the postseason. Well, it's it's a great unit. I I mean, all across the board, and you've heard the players talk about that. You know, these these coaches are going to hold the players accountable. There's no question about it. But at the same time, they spend as much time getting them prepped to play and ready to play that, you know, they don't usually have to hold them that accountable because these guys are coached up. They know where they're supposed to be. They know what's expected of them. They know to, you know, that because of the culture that I talked about earlier, they know uh, about the effort level that they are expected uh, to perform to and to give. And so this coaching staff, they just, you know, you watch them pregame. I, I guess that'd be the best way to, to describe it. Watch them pregame and watch the time that these coaches put in with the players as a group, as individuals, you know, whatever they may be working on that day. You just watch from afar and you know that these players are, are going to play their hearts out for them because these coaches are selfless. They give of themselves. They give of their time. They're out there, you know, working one-on-one with the catcher, you know, a, an hour and a half before batting practice, you know, uh, with no fanfare, just putting the time in. And that rubs off on these players. They, they know that they can go out and, and get the work in. They appreciate these coaches and the time that they put in. And so they're going to go out and perform for them. And so that's the way really this organization top to bottom has been built. And this coaching staff's the same thing where the players are a close knit group and everybody gets along. It's the same thing with the coaching staff. And so that makes for a pretty, you know, seamless transition of information and ideas from staff to player. And that's why everything runs smooth here with the race. 
Two more questions for Brian Anderson, and I want to go back to the comparison that I made at the start. The one thing I remember about the county cross-country team that I was referring to, that I drew this analogy to, when the great pack gets to states and they run into uh, teams that have good packs and stars, they run into some trouble. Uh, And I worry that the Rays may run into some trouble. What can you say to convince me that I'm wrong on that? Well, I'll tell you what. This is a this is a a battle tested team. I I I love the pack mentality. You know the the way that you view this club. I would say this: they run into some other teams that are really good and are you know top end players on that team. Maybe some more household names. But you've got your big three. Like I said, your big three as far as starting pitching have the ability to go out there and set the tone and dominate on any given night. Blake Snell, Tyler Glass now, and Charlie Morton, when they are at their best, they're as good as anybody uh, in the game. You know, Cy Young two years ago for Blake Snell, Tyler Glass now uh, can absolutely just overwhelm people with his stuff. And Charlie Morton, you talked about him in the postseason. So those are the three starters that you're going to run out at, at teams. And then offensively, they don't have a lot of big names, power names, but they have a lineup that works very well together. And Kevin Cash puts them in spots where they complement each other. And they're a versatile offense. You know, there's going to have, there are going to be some games where if you make some mistakes out over the plate, they're going to hit some home runs. There's no doubt about it. Brandon Lau, Hunter Renfro, these guys can launch. At the same time, they can play small ball. You know, you look over the last month and the Rays, you know, lead Major League Baseball in stolen bases. They started to incorporate more of the running game with Randy Orozarena and Kevin Kiermeyer. Manuel Margot led the team in steals. So they're starting to incorporate some of that speed into their offensive game planning. And they've become a very versatile offense that is not tied to just one way to score runs. So they can score runs in a multitude of ways. They've got absolutely locked down, shut down at full strength starting pitching in their top three. They've got a very deep and versatile bullpen that Kevin Cash can dip into. And if he has to go to him for, you know, four or five innings worth of outs, guess what? They can cover it and they catch the baseball. They were a little shaky at the beginning of the season and Kevin Cash kind of called them out and said, we need to do a lot better job uh, defensively. And they have done that. Coming down the stretch, they have gotten back to the old Rays way where we're going to pitch at an elite level and we are going to defend at an elite level and we're going to combine that with a very versatile offense. I think that's their best shot. All right, last question. And I mentioned your postseason numbers at the start too. And I know it's easy for you to deflect those and say that it was much the work of your teammates, but you did both roles. You had a couple of great relief appearances for the Indians and Diamondbacks. You started a World Series game in Yankee Stadium and pitched well. Uh, What insights can you share about the mental approach to it that puts us inside the mind of a pitcher as we watch this postseason go? Well, this is what I I will tell you. And And I've talked to teammates about this throughout my career after getting a taste of the postseason in 97. And I I will tell you this, until you, and this is speaking to another player, until you actually go out there and are able to play in a postseason game, it's hard for me to describe to you how different the game is. You you get to play in your first postseason and you realize that there is another level. Because all that while that, that you're a big leaguer, you're like, this is it. This is the uh, this is the ultimate playing big league baseball. Um, even if it's the you know the Sunday night game of the week, this is as big as it gets. Major league baseball at the highest level. You know, this is it until you get in the postseason, and then you're like, oh my, there's a whole nother level to this game. 
It's, it's, it's the, the, the time of year where batting practice becomes an event. You know, we're in a normal year, not a pandemic year, but in a normal year, media everywhere for BP. I mean, every, there's a buzz around the field all the time. And so really what you have to do as a player and especially as a pitcher is you really need to just dial in. I mean, you understand that, you know, that your time in the postseason can be very short. So ultimate focus, ultimate concentration, know the game plan, know what you're supposed to be doing and become single minded of purpose. That really is what it boils down to. And 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 just enjoy the moment. You do all the work that you need to do to be prepared and then go out there and compete like you've never competed before. And that's what all these guys are, are going to do. And for those that have never performed in the postseason before it won't take them too long to figure out that it's a different level and you need to dial it up a notch do you remember like the first pitch that you threw in the postseason and how it kind of changed your your, your I, approach suddenly you know what i don't remember the first pitch but i remember the game and it was um, i had gotten added to the roster in 1997 in the alcs against the orioles when i was with the cleveland indians and so we were losing game one in baltimore and Mike Hargrove brought me in late in that game. We were down a couple of runs and I went in and I threw a couple of innings. And that's when I realized, hey, this is just baseball and it's just pitching. But boy, it's a different level. I could put it this way. Mike Hargrove called me his office before that game and he said, look, I'm adding you to the roster. You're going to be coming out of the bullpen, obviously. Uh, I have no idea how I'm going to use you at this point. Just be ready from the first pitch of the game. Okay, fair enough. First couple of innings of the game, I was pacing like you could not believe because I really hadn't pitched a lot out of the pen and especially in the playoffs. And I can remember vividly sitting down next to Eric Plunk and I looked over at him and I said, how do you guys do this for 162 games? I mean, it's the fourth inning of game one of this series and I'm exhausted. And he just laughed. He said, you'll get used to it. You'll get used to it and you'll get yourself a little routine and, and you'll be fine. And Mike Hargrove got me into that game late. And I went in, and as I started to compete, I was like, okay, just make your pitches, just like you do in the regular season. Yeah, there's, there's more focus and there's more Zoom here, but, but let's just make your pitches. And that really got me comfortable and, you know, in, in postseason you know, competition. And then I just kind of picked it up from there, and uh, that's really how the ball got rolling as far as understanding how the postseason works and what you need to do to be successful. All right, Brian Anderson, uh, Voice of the Rays, along with Wayne Stats. Thank you so much. This was awesome. I look forward to watching the Rays this postseason. Good luck to them. Hey, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. SISBets.com is back for 2020. And if you didn't make use of it last year, you missed out on easy money. SISBets.com is an advanced prop betting information tool powered by Sports Info Solutions. With it, you can leverage the power of our proven projections models to find value against the odds. You're never more than a few clicks away from knowing whether your favorite wide receiver is likely to score a touchdown this week or whether a quarterback that you have your eye on is likely to go over or under his completions prop. Just choose the bet type, the player, and the money line to see the SIS Bets recommendation. SISBets.com is available for just $9.99 per month, so it easily pays for itself, and that price covers both football and baseball. That means you can also take advantage of our most popular bet type, home run projections, which our users rode to a very solid 12% ROI in 2019. Sign up at SISBets.com.
Joe Davis is in his fifth season as a TV broadcaster for the Los Angeles Dodgers, first filling in for Vin Scully and now the team's full-time voice. He pairs with former pitcher Oral Hershiser and also broadcasts college football, basketball, and the NFL for Fox. You'll hear him on the playoffs with John Smoltz. When you watch a Joe and Oral broadcast every so often, you'll get something that I call storytelling with statistics. They bring up a stat like WRC Plus or performance by pitch type and relate it to the Dodgers. Joe explains it, Oral asks questions, and Joe answers them. And they don't miss a beat in analyzing the game. Meanwhile, the Dodgers were the best team in baseball this season. They're favored to win their first World Series since 1988. So let's ask Joe some questions. Joe, what's the stat you most like about the 2020 Dodgers? Oh, that's a good one to start with. And there are a lot of choices on that. I may go with, with a player-specific one. The first thing that jumps to mind is just Will Smith's extraordinary growth into this elite hitter when you look at all the underlying numbers, you know, from an elite walk rate to an elite strikeout rate to when he is swinging, an elite batted ball profile. I mean, he, he was, you know, he's a good offensive player as, as he debuted last year and did some impressive things, but nothing like what we're seeing now. So just his growth into not just a really good hitter, but one of the best hitters in the game over two months would be mine. I appreciated that you didn't pick someone who was a superstar. You picked someone uh, who, was, yeah. uh, who was kind of grown as a player. How does this team kind of mix its superstars with its players like a, a Will Smith type? You know, the guys like Will Smith get overshadowed because there are the superstars, right? Like Mookie Betts and Cody Bellinger, and you can even throw Corey Seager into that group, Justin Turner, a bigger name. But there are so many guys who... We mentioned Smith, but what about like Chris Taylor, who's had a really nice season and everything Kike Hernandez does defensively. I know he's not been very good offensively, but it really is an exceptional blend of superstar players and guys like that that are more role players that on another team will get more notoriety just because they they wouldn't have as many stars around them. I, I think it's just a pretty remarkable blend that they have on the roster. We have to go to Mookie Betts because he's been fantastic for the Dodgers this season. Uh, both at bat and in the field, kind of set the tone. Didn't hit in the first couple of games of the season, but made a couple of nice running catches. What has impressed you most about him? Just that there's something different every day. It seems like that he does exceptionally well. And honestly, it seemed, you know, we just talked about how many star players there are on this team, how many great players there are. There were long stretches this year where he still seemed like he was in his own league, even on our roster. And it just... Every single night. So you know, normally you say, Mark, like with utility guys or scrappers that you have to see them play every day to really appreciate their value. Somehow I feel like that applies to Mookie Betts. And it's to because he has all these outstanding skills where he's as good as anybody. You might not see them all on a given night. And to really appreciate Mookie Betts is to see him each night and see these you know, this wide range of elite skills manifest. And being able to see that, not over a full season, a full traditional season, but over 60 games, it was uh, it was awesome. It was a highlight of our summer getting to watch that. You could say he's a likely uh, MVP candidate. Uh, you could mm -hmm. say he is an MVP candidate this year. Uh, another MVP caliber player from last year, Cody Bellinger. What happened to him this season? Yeah, it was not good. Uh, he started to come out of it a little bit the last couple weeks here. You look at walk rate, strikeout rate, chase rate, all pretty similar to what it was. It's just he was not doing nearly as much damage on pitches in the zone. Um, he overhauled his stance a little bit during the quarantine. He came back from 
being away for a couple months and the stance was almost unrecognizable when the team started at summer camp. And he spent a lot of the season trying to unwind what he had done, the tweaks that he had made. And that's hard to do in the middle of a major league season when you've got major league pitchers attacking you and trying to exploit your weaknesses and you're up there trying to work on something mechanically. That's hard. I, I think that anybody's going to struggle with that. But we did see him, you know, the last couple of weeks start to look a little bit more like himself. I still don't think he's close to what he was last year in terms of, you know, the, the comfort level that we saw him have for last year. And like any time there was a ball in the strike zone, he was going to do damage on it. There were some stretches last year where it was just ridiculous. He's not there, but he's certainly not a below average hitter like he was for a lot of the year. What happened to uh, Corey Seager that led to his hard hit rate being among the best in baseball that essentially uh, made him a Bellinger-type hitter? Yeah, he's healthy. You know, you, he, you look back at 2016 and 17, his first two full major league seasons, he was an exceptional hitter. And he was uh, he was an all-star. He was, a, he was a silver slugger both those seasons. And then he gets hurt and misses pretty much all 2017. He had Tommy John and he had hip surgery. He comes back in 2019 and has a has said he missed 17. He missed all 18. He comes back in 19 and wasn't quite himself, but still has a really good year. Led the league in doubles. You look at some other categories, too, where he was still a really good player. And he says he didn't feel right all year. He felt healthy, but he didn't feel strong and he didn't quite feel right. Well, this year he feels right. He feels healthy. And it's a guy who's always had raw skills as a hitter that can match up with just about anybody. So I think you're putting all that together and the fact that he's he's a fairly experienced player now. He's not a young dude anymore. Kind of the perfect storm for his emergence. Feeling right and feeling healthy is certainly an important point heading yeah. into the playoffs. Uh, Justin Turner, some of the other guys, how's their uh, health going into the postseason? Well, I don't think that Turner's hamstring is great just in watching him run, but I don't know that it needs to be. I think it's it's good enough for, for him to hit and play third. I don't know if it's good enough for him to go first to third on a base hit, but he uh, he's hitting above 400. Uh, he's, he's doubled his home run total since returning from the injured list. He's reached in 31 games in a row. And defensively, there's been some improvements from last season. So I think he's in a good spot. And, you know, Mookie Betts got hit on the hip the other night, and there was some concern when he left the game, but I think he's okay. Max Muncy, we've seen him – with uh, seemingly some pain in his wrist, but Dave Roberts says no big deal there either. So I think health-wise, knock on wood, they're pretty good. And the health of the pitching staff, uh, and that starts with uh, Clayton. How's Kershaw doing? Kershaw health-wise has been great. His last start wasn't as good as he's been for much of the season, but that's been one of my favorite things this year has been to watch him get back to dominating hitters like we saw in his prime. And It's not the same thing it's not 95 96 just pounding it right by guys but it is the the same idea of having really good stuff in the strike zone good enough stuff to be able to get hitters out in the zone and that's something the last couple years we haven't seen him able to do if this is a run that goes deep among the other starting pitchers who might we be the most impressed by dave roberts has said the two most important guys on this roster are kershaw and bueller bueller and kershaw whatever way you want to say that (laughs) You know, they, they've got to be great. Beyond that, a lot of it's going to be matchup oriented. One guy that has been awesome that you don't hear a ton about yet, I think if you – what Dodger rookie do you hear most about? Probably Dustin May, right, with the you know, the long red hair and the 100-mile-per-hour sinker, and there's good reason for all that that you hear about him. But Tony Gonsolin has been more impressive. 
And I think Tony Gonson winds up probably starting more games in October than Dustin May does. I think you'll see Dustin May in uh, kind of a bulk role where they can find a lineup that's very right-handed and he can you, know, you can maximize his bullets. Tony Gonson has very even splits and it started to look like a guy that really belongs pitching big games. So that becomes interesting uh, because you've got a bullpen that is loaded with, I would say, depth guys too. In particular, mm-hmm. the lefty relievers. Uh, and with the three batter minimum, things get interesting this year. Uh, we know Kenley's the key guy, but what, what can you tell us about the lefty relievers, uh, Jake and Adam Kalarik? Yeah, and then I would even actually put a guy above those two, Mark, and that is yep. Victor Gonzalez. He's been one of the great surprises of the season, and he's somebody who gets out left and right, and there's a lot of swing and miss there. And, and you know, swing and miss is big in October. Avoiding bats is key, and he does that as well as anybody. Jake McGee has that similar quality. I think we all kind of look at it and say, how? Because it's just 94, 95-mile-per-hour fastball after 95-mile-per-hour fastball. And he's had a great season throwing about 95% fastballs. Uh, Caleric serves his purpose, really solid, not as good against right-handed hitters. So that presents an issue, as you mentioned, with the three-batter minimum. And then Julio Arias, I think, has a good chance to pitch out of the bullpen and be another guy that, that can get both sides out. There's just not quite as much swing and miss with him as there is from Victor Gonzalez. What impresses you about the righties in the bullpen? You know, I, I think that there is there are a lot of guys down there. There's nobody down there right now right-handed. And I'm kind of just running through the guys in my mind where you feel like 100% trust, 100% great in them. But there are a bunch of guys who you wouldn't be surprised if asked that same question a month from now. You said, oh, yeah, he was the one who stepped up and was the one they could rely on in October. Kenley Jansen's got to be good. We know that. But Joe Kelly, Blake Trinan, Dylan Floro. I'm sure I'm going to miss somebody. Bruce Star Gratterall. These are all guys who, I mean, look, it's been the number one bullpen in baseball this year. And these are all guys who at one time or another have looked dominant and have looked like guys that could be very high leverage relievers that you can trust in the, in the biggest of moments in October. They've also all taken turns, giving you reason to have some pause when you think about it. Uh, I, you know, I think you, you get through the uh, – if you can get through the three-game nightmare for a, for a top <laughs> speed, if you get through that, I think that there is a depth of really potentially great options right-handed. Somebody didn't even mention Joe Kelly, I and mean, we all know about Joe Kelly. A lot of potentially dominating options, but nobody who right now you say, oh, yeah, that's the shutdown guy when you get to October. It's funny that you called it a three-game nightmare because I'm sure there was no team more – sad about the idea of the three-game first round than the Dodgers, given last year. Is there any stat that would point out a weakness in this team? It's showing they're 43 and 17, right? Yeah, (laughs) not really. Of course, we can go through individual players and find some. I think that it's not this team, but you look back to last year, similarly really good offense during the regular season, and you could say this in 2018 as well, really good offense in the regular season, couldn't replicate that in October. You look at the division series last year, they they struck out like 12 times a game. They were six for some something horrible with runners in scoring position. I can pull this up for you and tell you. But the, the main thing is that it's, can it translate to October? Can they do what they did all through the regular season? So yeah, la- division series last year, they hit home runs like they did. They hit nine home runs in the five games. So that was 
duplicating the, the regular season success, but they struck out 64 times in five games and they went five for 37 with runners in scoring position. So can they maintain everything we've seen during the regular season when the games matter the most? And also uh, on the other side of the field, one, one strength that we didn't mention, by the way, the defensive play. What so, impresses you about their defense? The defensive positioning, we, we kind of become numb to it because we watch it every night. But I think that it's, it's really good. It shows up in the defensive efficiency numbers, but it shows up really when you watch them every night and you see how many balls are hit right at guys who are not playing traditional locations for their position. They're a step ahead somehow. This front office and this game planning group, they always seem to be a step ahead of what everybody else is doing. And you combine that with the fact that they've got really talented fielders. It's, uh, it's another huge strength for them. So in the last 12 minutes, every time I've brought up a question, you've come back at us not with just an answer, but you've come back at us with essentially what I was talking about at the beginning, a story to go with some statistics. And we recently talked to uh, other broadcasters about this, and uh, you in particular are someone who puts them to very good use. And it's interesting to me because you're working with someone primarily during the season who's almost twice your age. You would never know it from the interplay that you have. What's the approach that you use when integrating the newer stats into a game broadcast, whether it be with Oral or with John Smoltz? Well, first of all, with Oral, the thing is that like he, you know, he's 62 or whatever he is, and I'm 32, but he's a really young 60-something, and I'm really <laughs> kind of boring and have always kind of been, I guess, mature for my age. So we, like, we meet in the middle. It's pretty easy for us to get along and be on the same page despite the age gap. And he is so open to all the new age information and all the all the things that are now governing the game from a numbers side. And he combines that with his his old school feel and having played the game. And Smoltzy, I think, would be the first to tell you he doesn't have quite as much of a straight acceptance of all that stuff. Yep. But he still, I mean, you, you hear him use a lot of the things that, that are now governing the game and do a great job of it. So first of all, it's having a partner who you know is going to at least engage when you bring something like that. And I have that with both those guys. And then the other thing is I never try to make it math class. I try to know enough about the stat and the number, the, the specific number where hopefully you aren't hearing me very often give actual numbers. I'm taking a concept from a number that I've seen and translating it as you eloquently put it into hopefully a story about a player. You know, so I'm not telling you, and I couldn't even tell you without looking it up that Will Smith's walk rate is whatever. You know, I yep. I don't even tell anybody that Will Smith's walk rate is 12.5 percent. That means nothing even to me. People at home watching the game, they don't care about that. But if I tell you Will Smith has the best walk rate in the National League, that's something, and I can wrap my mind around that and easily watch and enjoy the game as opposed to feeling like I'm in math class. So I just I always try to make it to wrap it in context and give context around it and use the number to create the context in my own mind so I can then translate it in a more easily digestible way, I guess. Do you have a favorite statistic or two among the newer age stuff? I don't know that you'd consider it newer age, but I'm, I think that OPS on a simple level is what is governing the game more now than obviously batting average and the traditional line of batting average homers and RBIs. And so I'm trying to as best I can. If, if there's a number I'm giving where it probably becomes more math classy, it's probably that. It's probably OPS where I'm willing to give that number because I think that it's probably time that 
that we educate the fans on what a good OPS is. And I think there's becoming more of a widespread acceptance that that is a better tell of what a hitter is doing than batting average. But I think it's also part of our job to continue to drive that. So OPS and then the other, I know that people, it's kind of split. Do people like hearing about exit velocities and launch angles and things like that? I think that there's not as wide of an acceptance from viewers on that stuff. So those are ones that I enjoy and I look at to, to learn about players and hopefully become an expert about some of the guys and what they're doing. But I try to translate those without giving actual numbers. Yep, and get this, get them in for the sponsorships as well. All right, last question for Jim Davis. Oh, this is a personal one because you and I are both uh, Division Three broadcasting alums. The Dodgers right. do not have the best winning percentage of a baseball team that you've broadcast. I think the answer to that is the 2009 Beloit College team, 28 and 9. So what advice would you give to the kid broadcasting at a Division Three school or a smaller college about integrating information into a baseball broadcast and getting to the level of broadcasting that you've gotten to. Yeah, it's, it's funny. And we chatted about this before we started recording that 2019. Now that I think about it, star pitcher, ace pitcher, Rick Krajewski, who is now my Dodger stats and research guy and has moved to LA and you know, lives down the street from us in South Pasadena. So small world, I'm mean, tying that all together, but man, it's just all about getting reps and, you don't need to go to a school where you don't need to go to Syracuse or Northwestern or Missouri or whatever. It's great if you do. And there's, there's a reason that those schools churn out so many awesome broadcasters, but the bigger thing is where can you go to get hands-on experience? And I I think that in most division three schools, you can kind of have a monopoly on those opportunities. And there's, there's exceptions to that. You know, they're, they're great division three broadcasting schools out there where you're going to have more people that want to do what we're doing and you're going to have greater competition, but be creative, be aggressive, be aggressively creative coming up with opportunities to get on the air and nobody has to even hear it. I used to do games into my tape recorder and nobody would hear it, but I was practicing. And so while you're in it, practice all you can. And as far as the numbers side of it, like you asked, I think that just kind of like I mentioned, try not to make it math class. Try to master the the concepts enough in your own mind that you can translate some of those numbers to educate the people at home without bogging them down, you know, with the minutia of the actual digits. Joe Davis, Deloitte College, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Best of luck uh, with the Dodgers and with Fox the rest of the year. Thank you, Mark. It was fun, man. We hope you enjoyed our talk with Brian Anderson and Joe Davis. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in our regular slot next week. Stay safe and stay well. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.